ora, koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, he kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. Bloody women. Wahini Toa, Lana Lepesi and Coco Solid, aka Jessica Hansel, joined forces for a proudly strident hour of conversation on their latest books and preoccupations. How to Loiter in a Turf War is a genre-bending work of fiction from Solid, one of Aotearoa's fiercest and most versatile artists across rap, art, film, performance and writing. The 2022 Ockham New Zealand Book Awards long-listed Bloody Woman is an eloquent and provocative essay collection by author, art critic and editor Lepesi dissecting the experiences of being a Pacifica woman. Kia ora tātou, um, Welcome to the Auckland Writers Festival, everyone. Um, called Jessica Hansel Tokuingua, me Koko Solorane. Um, this is my distinguished writing peer, Lana Lopesi, and this is our public conversation. Um, dubbed for many reasons, Bloody Woman. Um, Lana and I will be in conversation for the next hour about our writing and our recent books. Lana will discuss her recent collection of essays, Bloody Woman, and I'll be talking about my own book, How to Loiter in a Turf War. So as you can see, we're um, awkwardly self-moderating <laughs> and self-introducing and outroing ourselves tonight. But um, yeah, to Pacific <laughs> women, we're not strangers to doing unaccounted for labour, so <laughs> just a bit of housekeeping. Um, please check your phones are set to quiet. Wear face masks if you're able. Um, feel comfortable to leave if you begin to feel unwell. I won't take it personally. Um, feel free to share Auckland Writers Festival Waitohi or Tamaki on social media, but um, don't go turbo and get in someone else's way. Um, hopefully, after our corridor, we'll have time for questions at the end. Um, <coughs> Sorry. I'll start us with the karakia, and I just want to thank um, Ngāti Pawa, Ngāi Tai, Te Waiohua, Ngāti Whātua, Wawarake, Ngāti Teata, and Te Kawarawa Maki for having us on their land. So, he honore, he kororia, ki ngā atua, he maungarunga ki te whenua, he whakarapai ki ngā tangata katoa, Hanga e te atua, he ngā kauhau, ki roto, ki tēnā, ki tēnā o mātou, whakatungia tō wairua tapu i ngā mahi mō tēnei pō. Haumi e hui e, tāu. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I start? Yeah. Um, well, I was just reflecting in preparation for this talk about the first time that I met Jess, and it was probably the biggest stand moment I've ever had. I was doing this kind of like community project. This was before my failed art career ended, and I was still trying to grind as an artist. And I was doing this little project in Wellington, and I just cold emailed Coco Solid, maybe through like the contact sheet on your website or something like that. And I just kind of said, I'm a big fan, would love to meet up if you're around, and graciously she said yes, and so I picked her up in my uncle's RAV4 with um, Faith Wilson, and we went out to this show that I was doing, and we saw this amazing performance by Leah Phil Wilson, Olga Kraus, and I was just sort of thinking about how far we've come, but also that was quite a few years ago now, and I feel like that was the last time that we had like a proper chat about stuff. Mm. Um, but that was also kind of at the end of your time at Modern Letters, which for many people I feel would be the start of a literary career. But I feel like when I think about your work and your writing, it started way before that. And so I was kind of keen to know where you see the genesis point for you. In terms of writing? Yeah. Um, I think like, 
yeah, I was just kind of like always a creative person, always a writer at heart. It was like in everything I did. I was like the intense kid with like three diaries and people were like, what are you, what are you even writing about? What do you have to worry about, you know? Like, um, and I feel like it was just part of my, my DNA, my programming. I wasn't from an artistic family and so I didn't have any references in terms of limitations either. People think that's like a bad thing, but for me, I felt like I was just, yeah, it was my impulse. What about you? I think, I, I, I wasn't really prepared for the questions to come back to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I always thought, like I, I feel like I always had a big imagination and that I always thought, I'd be a really good serial killer. Yeah. Because I thought that I would know how to not get caught because you just like follow all the leads and think critically about what the other people are going to think mm. and outsmart them and then you get away with it. Mm. And so I yeah. feel like that kind of like seed of imagination started when I was watching like TV with my parents. Mm. And then I had no choice not to go to uni because, you know, migrant kid and my kid, my teen parents never got to do that. So we had we had to find something, and I just crossed my fingers and managed to get into Elam, having never done art at high school, realised not really great at making art, but in retrospect, all of the projects I did was pseudo-publishing. Mm. It was either kind of like z sort of zine-ish stuff or posters. Yep. Um, yeah, so I think it was, it was there, and then when my friends started making work that was like so powerful, I just found immense satisfaction in putting words to it, like being able to kind of work with them and think with them in that form. And then luckily, I guess I've just been able to stick around long enough. Yeah, I was always kind of making small publications and zines that no one asked for, you know, when I was a child. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and kind of, I had um, one of my biggest enablers was my great aunt, my grandmother's sister, and she was my auntie Rosina, and she was a character. That's why I named Rosina after my book. Because of that, she was just such an enabler and totally gassed up my delusions, you know. <laughs> and I would be creating really, like, derivative stuff. And she'd be like, original. We <laughs> love it, you know. And, um, but my whole whanau got behind it. My mum was buying me a typewriter because I wanted a typewriter. And it feels on brand. Yeah, it was very on brand. And I kind of feel like... I wasn't a good student. I was always in detention. I was always frustrated, bad reports, you know, that stuff. But I was really prideful about language. Yeah. And I was really prideful about being um, a good writer. And I never, you know, they would call me a lot of things, but they couldn't call, you know, they couldn't really critique me in that space. So I kind of had a big ego. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For that one particular thing. And that was always something that I just preserved. And it was a very DIY, underground kind of writer thing. It was always less zines and comics and, um, you know, wherever I could get any kind of like small, yeah, opportunity. But yeah, I'd say maybe Modern Letters was where I kind of came into contact with the lit literary industrial complex for the first time mm -hmm. and how people experience writing and literature and language in a completely different way to me and what they do it for. Like, for me, it was always going to be a tool. Mm. It was always going to be a weapon. It was always going to be, um, yeah, a buffer and, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to ask what writing is to you, but I guess <coughs> you've kind of already answered that. So, like, if it's a tool, then what's it a tool for? Um, healing. It's a tool for healing. It's a tool for um, ejecting the poison that has kind of, like, been the, a blight on my people. <laughs> it's, um, yeah... Catharsis, yeah. Um, I feel like that's really evident in my book. There's just so much kind of stuff that I've endured that I've been able to weave into it as a kind of um, act of catharsis. Um, I think 
it's all just an offering, you know? It's all just an attempt. It's like, I know I'll never reach that perfection, but it's just my kind of, my way of um, manifesting something. Yeah. Like, um, whether it's a psycho-spiritual thing or whether it's a socio-political act or whether it's really just a more accurate depiction that I don't see very often of how things are and how I experience them, then that's what I'm doing it for. Yeah, and so it's kind of intense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you don't like the ricochet, but what do you do it for? Um, I think that... Yeah, I had to come to terms when I was writing Body Women with the idea that my writing is selfish first and foremost because when I started to think about all of these big tasks that I had like burdened myself with when I was younger around like representation and trying to make the world a better place, I would just get really um, paralysed yep. in the writing process. And so what I realised is that for me, I love to write into the mess. I love to write into the spaces that I don't understand and that make me feel deeply uncomfortable. And writing is a process of coming to terms with that. Mm. Um, but I also, I don't know, I guess like maybe sort of three years ago, just started to think about death a lot and the, oh, I guess I suppose our own immortality and the way in which a lot of my work, or sometimes you go through these processes where you make your work really safe for yourself because you're thinking so much about the people on the other end. Mm. And so instead I kind of went through this process of being like, I could die tomorrow and would I be okay with what I've written or would I feel like I had held back? Mm. And I think that kind of really changed the process. And so I hope that it has, <coughs> I hope that it does things in the world, but if it doesn't, that's okay. Cause like I can sleep at night knowing that like I've bled on those pages yeah, and I've done everything, said everything yeah. in the way that I wanted to and like, that's that. And there's that pendulum swing of, you know, um, we live on a rock, it doesn't really matter, and this could be the last conversation I have with another human being, and I could yeah. be dead tomorrow, you know? And my Tani is always like, just order your coffee, like, <laughs> just relax. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but I think... Well, that's like the writing, like, for Karo too. So I'm like, this yeah. is everything ever. Like, leave it on the page. And it's like, girly... Just chill. Just relax. <laughs> I think those are the places you go to in your mind when you're... Like, it's just you and your computer as well. Yeah. And it's also kind of... I like what you say about it's selfish. We had this conversation before where it's like... I was saying, you know, I'm not always thinking of the people on the other end, but I am always thinking of, yeah, a collective mamai and the potential that anything that I um, do, even if it's a small potential, to contribute to something mildly improving on that level. Mm. And, yeah, like a tool for healing and stuff. And how you framed it as, oh, well, these ideas were just keeping me up at night, so I needed to share them. And I don't think that is selfish, because sometimes it's about reaching and radicalising one person. And if that person so happens to only be you, you know, that's good enough. That's yeah. my jam. Hey. Eh? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking about how we were talking about myth-busting do a lot of myth-busting as a Māori Pacific person <laughs> of like, we don't, we don't really talk like that, you know, and you're not trying to speak for the monolith of people, but you know what you're speaking against. Yeah. Right, and we do a lot of, um, we do a lot of stuff like that in our writing, I both think. Do you think that's fair to say? I think that's, that's fair to say. I think, yeah, it's kind of reflecting on this as well, like I, I don't ever feel like I see like a true reflection of myself in one place. Like I have to mm. kind of collage and cobble that together through my like pop culture and media and like intake from all across the world. And like somewhere in that mess in between, I feel like that's me. And so when I was writing Bloody Women, it was just kind of like digging really deep into that mess and not simplifying it for anyone else. But also I think sometimes we simplify it for ourselves and I don't understand why. 
you know, like actually living in the, the tensions that make up our very bodies, that feels really important to me. And also, because if I feel this way as someone, like as a fair-skinned, cisgendered, heteronormative woman with a very like normie family situation, then how does everyone else feel whose humanity is even less recognized in these forms? And so I think we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to everyone else to be really true about the diversity and the kind of mess and chaos that exists within our communities because otherwise we're only kind of ripping ourselves off. Mm. And I think like when we are, yeah, I agree. You can only really see yourself kind of scattered across, like smeared across the pop yeah, cultural landscape. You know, like, there's my eye, there's my <laughs> elbow, it's looking good. But that's kind of my experience with anything, you know? Multitudes and Multitudes. all of that. But I think when you are like demystifying something, my, my tool, my rock is always speak about what you are really seeing in real time, like yeah. out in these streets with your friends. <laughs> what are they saying? What are they worrying about? What are they doing? And then you can't get kind of critiqued for that authenticity. Because I'm like, would you like to see the receipts? This actually happened. You know, we have these exchanges. These mm -hmm. transmissions are really real. And it protects me so much. And, you know, I think of Aroha Bridge as well, where it's just like, well, what kind of chaotic, you know, family like does this? I'm like, my family actually, you yeah. know, like all parts and factions of my family, Frankenstein together. Yeah. Mm. And I think we have to check ourselves on that too, because I think <coughs> a lot of the creative work, it's it's easy to kind of self-essentialize ourselves. And I think we see it a lot where it's, it's kind of easier to smooth over those edges because maybe it will be more accepted by like an external party or whoever. But when you actually kind of like critically look at yourself and the things that you're saying, that's kind of when that diversity comes through. Like, I don't know, I just, I, I like, I worry sometimes that we make our narratives too simple for no reason. You know, there's this kind of like fear of scarcity or fear of exclusion, fear of like not getting published, not getting picked up, not getting funding. And I wonder how much of those myths we create for ourselves and why we, why we let that happen. That's why it's important to have one foot in the underground. That's why it's important to have, you know, to be making really valuable contributions like um, outside of sector and industrial concerns. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, I am having a very wonderful public conversation with you right now. But we've had some wonderful private conversations <laughs> and those are the real, that's the real shit because that's what grounds and helps us be able to, you know, I guess, yeah, we're not, we don't have to perform ourselves in order to survive yeah. when we're off the grid. It's too we easy are literally to embodying yourself. our principles. We're actually like, who are you when you're out of sight? of those things like yeah and I think writing for me is not um it's an e it's a constant thing that I'm doing you know I'm it's always something that I'm collecting and thinking and caring for I'm sure you're like that as well yeah I think as well it's like who are you when no one's got your back mm. like when you don't have a new book out I'm relaxed you know like <laughs> no not you personally but <laughs> I'm relaxed <laughs> yeah um, sorry, I'm moderating this as well. I'm looking at some things. One of the things that I was thinking about <laughs> with your book and with my work too is there's, because we're coming from that, you know, Pacifica girl, um, we're doing work under that. And there's that idea of being fiapoko, being ka'a, getting in trouble having a big mouth, having a big waha, like, why did you have to say that? Why did you have to share that? And I don't have that fear because I'm just like, that's going to really hold 
me back from doing what I know I need to do and what some people need to hear in order to feel seen or validated and even, yeah, back to myself. It's just something I simply have to do and I'm aware of it, you know, I don't enjoy it, but I'm aware of it. What's your relationship with that, like being a, being a baddie? Being a, yeah. Um, I, I am not scared of those words because they've been called them my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the other one that I would just add into the mix, which was like quite a big thing to, that I wrote about in Bloody Women is the idea of being kalaikiki or tautalaititi, mm. if you want to, whatever register you speak on. Um, and I don't know, I actually found it really empowering to like reclaim some of those things and actually I started City to... girl. Yeah, well... Like I know who I am, and I'm really confident in that. And so, why not play with this stuff? Like, why do we le why do we preserve it in a way that it, that it was never asked to be preserved? Yeah. And I think the thing that I've I found like I was most scared about getting told off about some of the bloody woman stuff by like other Samoan women who were like very heavily in the church because I'm a very different flavor of Samoan woman, I would say. Yeah. Um, but then I think it just, it makes us all better by having all of those, like, plentitudes in the world. And I just kind of realised, like, this is my truth. You can hate it, but it's not wrong. Yeah. Because it just, it just is what it is. Mm. And it's not taking away from anyone else's truth. And, like, hopefully we can just get to this stage where, like, we can see all that and, like, be okay with all of that so that there's, like, more room for everyone else. And yeah. no one's told me off to my face. So I'm taking that, but I'm sure there's like, like some people brought it, like family members, and I did kind of say like, oh, cuz like, I don't think you'll like it. And then they're like, oh, it's all good. We all had our kalaikiki stage, mm. and I'm like, mine's not a stage. <laughs> this is my life. <laughs> this is a lifestyle. <laughs> um, but you know. I did this thing where I reverse psychology in my family, where I was like, this book is so disrespectful and smutty and crazy. You won't be able to handle it. And then all of my really kind of religious family were like, I can handle it. You know, no, I can do it. And I kind of protected myself, you know. Yeah, that's and, that way, and in the end, it was like, I think it was a good thing because they all ended up reading it and I ended up getting feedback I would have never expected. But yeah. I think because my mum is Māori, she's Ngāpuhi from um, up north or Kaiho. And my dad is like a German Samoan, grey limb boy. And so he was like really raised in the church. And I feel like I really am about that tension to the point where I was almost named Jezebel because my mum liked a disco song. <laughs> you know, she's like, I love that song, Jezebel. And my grandmother had a heart attack, you know. <laughs> it's just the same. No way, my granddaughter's going to be called Jezebel. And it was, it's always that kind of like, I don't care about the church side of my family and that like I really care about the church side of my family, kind of yeah. in conversation. And it keeps things dynamic. It keeps me dynamic yeah. because I'm always, I think I'm just the product of tension. I really think I was born in the cartilage of a fist fight. You know, <laughs> because that's where I feel comfy. I'm just like, oh, okay, like we're having a tussle, but it happens to be within me. You know, like no biggie. Yeah. Yeah. If it's too chill, do you find tension? Do I heat sick it, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and I think, like, uh, the book's been interesting because people have been like, oh, you know, so tense, this day in the life of these people and it's just like tense from beginning to end and there's no kind of resolution and there's no, you know, you just see them having to kind of weather these little microaggressions and these storms and, um, you know, I like how you did that and I was like, I, I live like that, you know, like that is me from going from A to B, mm. that's me being a working artist that's me being kind of out in different mediums and different communities like we have to mitigate that like constantly and because I think of yeah um, 
multiculturalism, queerness, all of these things that um, I think, uh, yeah, those uh, tensions and ambiguities are like, that's a Tuesday, babe, that's not a big deal. <laughs> you know, like that's where I live and that's where I'm always trying to live. Like um, fluidity, I think, gets this kind of ethereal rap, but I think it's a really pragmatic thing, mm. you know, you're kind of saying like change is always possible, self-reflection and is always just around the corner, yeah. The, to my question to you. I don't know. Okay, it's let me have a look. It's weird. What have we got? <laughs> Wait, I, I can go one. Yeah? It's not a question, but I just was interested in having a yarn okay. ab about it about your relationship to the idea of being a public intellectual. <laughs> Are you one, do you think? I think that that's problematic. You are now. <laughs> Am I, babe? I think it's... I've never had a Hitler, cool. Yeah. I think it's maybe, like, problematic, corny. Um, hierarchical. It's making it into like a thing that mm. you are sharing your thoughts with your community. It's like yes. I I speak to my community, and that makes me instantly that. Yeah. And it makes your intellectual. That feels yucky. I don't like it. I don't like it. I think it's. Yeah, it's like for me, it's about like your work. Like I said before, what's embodied, what's in your actions, like who you are out in your community. That um, it it's giving colonial prestige, mm. <laughs> trying to make something happen, you know, trying to make something more important than you are. That just sounds to me like oh, a normal oratory disposition. Mm. You know, like why would you turn that into? Money. A lot of people would do it because it gets them money, but on like a yeah, like a spiritual, social, political level, like that just sounds like you an orator to me. Be like, mm. hey, what's your relationship with it? Yeah, no, I feel deeply uncomfortable about it. But I was just kind of thinking about the categories that I imagine other people put on us when they program us together, and <laughs> but. <laughs> Also, like, <laughs> and they put us of, on the shelves. Well, I'm just sort of like, I'm, I'm one, like, I'm curious, like, what do people expect from a talk like this? And I feel like it's a version of public intellectualism. And then when I hear that that kind of like idea, it actually just makes me want to recede and not say anything at all. But then it's a, it's giving, it's kind of like a circus performer. Yeah. But you're giving like, um, you know. Your your psyche over to that, and um, sure, I think maybe the the rejected um, teen in me who was constantly kind of underestimated and relegated as bad by um, the education system when I first started to hear public intellectual, I was like, "So you're saying I'm pretty?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would be like, "Foo, that's pretty cool," but then. I remember the downside to that, which is like, there's somebody else who is completely worthy of that airtime, that space, whose narrative has been completely muscled out of canon and public visibility, mm. who is just as worthy, if not more, of this kind of audience as you, you know, and um, they don't get it because they don't buy into the industrial complex of the public intellectual, like, yeah. I'm not interested. And then I just think, but we're still here. Yeah, as in we survive. Oh, we still said yes. <laughs> I got a book to and sell, we B. sell I'm trying books. to flip a, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying available. to flip a brick, I'm trying to sell a book. <laughs> I thought like, you know, like, I started off as a rapper, I'm a showgirl at heart. <laughs> You know, like I sign up for it, I commit to the bit. Yeah. I've almost, yeah. 
I almost died for that book, you know? So I'm going to give it the respect I think it deserves. Mm. And I want to give my community and readers the respect of giving them the opportunity to kind of engage with me about it, you know? And so it's kind of, yeah, it's like a mixture of um, connection, like legitimately, like it's, it's about trying to have the book and what we represent for a lot of people, you know? Mm. I know we both have a cloying aversion to representation, diversity, inclusion, all of those things that pretty much come under anything we do, whether we ask for it or not. Um, but there's a very real reality to that, and especially in the literary space. The literary sp space is, you know, it's cold for We've only just started to see some really massive paradigm shifts mm. in that world for um, indigenous writers and people of colour um, worldwide, but especially in this country, that I'm like, it's important that we contribute to that momentum. And um, whilst I could be, you know, really se separatist and ulti, it wouldn't be my first time, um, I think it's just important that we don't feel too um, too proud to contribute. Mm. You know, like I'm not a I'm not above it, and I think there's a lot of um, you know, like a book. So many people make it happen. You know, you want to respect their work and their vision too, like your editors and your designers, but also people who work and were groomed in the same tradition as you, and people who will think it's possible to write a book because of you. You know, it doesn't, doesn't have to be many people. <laughs> can, again, it can literally just be me. I'm cool with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's just an insight into how I go around in my head. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <sighs> it's, it's full on, you know. You know this, I know this. It's full on in these contexts. Mm. We shoulder a lot of kind of labor yeah. that we didn't sign up for. <laughs> and we have a lot of, um, uh, you know, like I, I often want to be that bard who's like navel gazing and just talking, you know, like I was reading this interview with this, with this fellow and it was just like, Talk me through your day, like from beginning to end, like when you wake up in the morning, what do you eat, and like until you go to bed. I was like, I ain't never been asked anything like that. <laughs> you know, like they're allowed to just muse in this whole other way and yeah. just like go, well, I'm gonna get up at about nine, I have some eggs. You know, it's always for me, it's like, tell me about trauma. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what? Hey, yeah. I don't want to ask you another question now. <laughs> <laughs> For the Astro Girlies, I'm uh, Capricorn Sun, Aquarius Moon. <laughs> Aquarius Sun, Capricorn Moon. So we really are yin-yanging right now. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to have a go? Um, Margaret Mead. <laughs> Full stop. Um, yeah, the, the anthropologist who garnered world acclaim for researching Samoan girls and Samoan womanhood, whose work has been formally kind of questioned and taken down over the years, but also in some parts of the world is wild, wildly celebrated. And when I read your book, because, you know, I, I always want to tussle when I read about Margaret Mead. But, um, and just how her subjects kind of later in life were just like, we, um, we, we lied. We <laughs> lied. We were exaggerating, you know, if you ask. Yeah, I just thought, what do you think about that? I don't think about her often. 
Um, just because I don't think we should ever position ourselves in like, or I don't, I don't find it healthy to be in reaction to other people because I spiral. Yep. Um, but when I was writing that particular essay about this idea of being kalaikiki, which is um, the translation is basically kind of speaking above your age, and it's kind of used to, um, it, yeah, I guess it's like a form of being called cheeky, but I, the way that I think about it is that it has like this cosmic fear that it emanates and it creates a form of disciplining, and in my opinion, specifically disciplining young women. And so I just kind of was trying to find like ways to rethink that and um, ways to think outside of being like disciplined and punished and like pushed into spaces because you're too loud or you're too willful or you're like too big for the room. And in all of the stuff about Margaret Mead, no one ever really talks about those women as like humans that had agency in that situation they always just talk about kind of Mead as like the mother of anthropology and the fallout between her and Derek Freeman. But I was like, what do you actually think of those girls if, as being empowered in that situation and that they actually knew what they were doing and they had some control over it? Pranksters. And they were pranksters. And because I can imagine it, them being mm. like, he, we told her we had sex under the trees, <laughs> but we don't. And yeah. they'll just be like, you know, that stupid Balangi lady, she's so <coughs> gullible, she believes us. Like, I can see that. Because the cheekiest woman I know, the cheekiest people I know are old Samoan ladies. Like, they will roast the shit out of anyone in a way oh, that, like, Oh, big tricks I the energy, yeah. You're kind of like, they'll say one thing and it's so loaded and you'll be like, where do I stand? <laughs> and it's just majestic. Because yeah. they've, like, really honed it over years of just... Head fucking people, pretty much. Yeah, basically, because it's complete with like smiles and grace, and you're like, oh shit, I have no idea what's yeah. happening. Um, but like, what and if you give them mana? Like, what if you actually gave those girls credit for for it? And then actually, it's not Margaret Mead who turned the face of anthropology. It was like this group of adolescent Samoan girls in like the Quebec villages who absolutely pranked Canon. Yeah, and they like like because the the research of Margaret Mead has made such significant changes in anthropology. Like, it's basically the, the nature versus nurture argument in the 1920s. And so, like, to think that these cheeky Samoan girls could have these ripple effects, which is so huge, just, like, I found so in inspiring. Yeah. And, yeah, I just want to be like them. Mm. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you are. <laughs> yeah, because I think when I was reading Bloody Woman, it was like, you want to go into the archive and you want to see what else happened. And I'm like that too. That's my relationship with Canon. It's always like, heard it, you know, <laughs> already done this before. Like, who else was there? Um, or like, what other work that was kind of deemed irrelevant or not industry standard was there? That's always like what we, what I heat seek because I find that's always got the source. It's always tied to source. It's always kind of more for me, the stuff that inspires me, and it's always where I'm always aiming to speak from. Mm. Yeah, and it's not um, speaking against canon or speaking truth to power. It's like you're really, you're just telling your story, and yeah. it's very genuine, and you're imploring and um, helping others to do the same. And I think when you re-look at the same things with like a different kind of consciousness, there's actually so much there. Mm. Which is not to say that history hasn't been written by a whole bunch of white dudes, but that like you can read between the lines there and the story that you've heard here and um, like people like Leonie Samutui at Auckland Museum would also just kind of like show me things that they had in the collections and in my imagination I was like well what if that mark on that mat is actually this thing over here yep. and like who's to tell me that it's not because mm. like it was white anthropologists that were writing this kind of you know dudes writing this stuff down writing these histories down and so you can actually kind of like start to create these pictures 
of alternative realities, or like actually actual realities that are alternative to the realities that we're told. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me have a look. I really like it how we're able to like just talk about our writing and our relationship with it, like you know, like craft and the nerdy stuff. Yeah, that's my favourite stuff. No one ever Same. wants to talk to no brown one ever wants to talk to me stuff. about it either. And they're missing out on so much, you know, because again, it's like a narrative thing. How do we show people? that this is possible or this is going on, whether you like it or not, or whether you centralise it and depict it or not, if we're not, um, if we're not able to tell it, you know, and that comes into like the opportunities we're given and the questions we're asked. I actually just love to talk about, yeah, our relationship with language and how it began and all those kind of things, you know, so I really appreciate I really appreciate you oh, and this. I appreciate you too. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <Please> stop now. <laughs> um, I do have a geeky language question yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, because something that I've always found in your work and my suspicion is that it comes because you're a musician mm -hmm. as well, is the sort of lyricism in your use of adjectives. Because you just like collide adjectives together that make no sense apart. Yep. But somehow when you bring them together, they describe things in a way that is incredibly on point, but also really slippery. And I've always just been in like absolute awe of that. Mm. So like, I think my question is like, A, how do you do it? And then B, do you just like see the world in these like trippy adjectives? Fair question, and thank you. Um, yes, I do. I do see things through like pretty psychedelic terms, <laughs> um, but I didn't know that obviously until I engaged with the world. And um, I was, yeah, I remember being like young in class, and <laughs> all we had to do was cut a picture out of something from a magazine, put on a piece of paper, you know, ch -ch -ch, this is a dog, sit down. And I saw the picture of a table, and it was had heavy, like, serviettes, champagne glasses, it was, like, totally dressed up, and I cut it out, and I stood at the front of the class, and it was like, this is a birthday cake. <laughs> and the class went crazy, because, you know, six-year-olds are haters. <laughs> and... Um, so I think I really learned something because I was just like, I, I knew that it's about perception and being a bit of a troll, but also um, sensory, you know, and like um, tilting something on its head and making constant correlations, you know, like I'm always doing that. It's like, I love your pants. They remind me of Coyote Ugly. They remind me of this. They remind me of that, you know. Okay. And I have just like a, an index of things that something is always reminding me of and I just want to make those connections and uh, that's just how I am, I think. You know, like, um, and I love describing things. I love thinking of a planet that comprises, like, the thing that I see, like, and all of the associations I make, and sometimes that can be really unlikely for some people, but for me it feels like <laughs> obvious, like birthday cake, you know? I'm still stuck at six-year-olds. Yeah. You, so you were six years old? Yep. Wow. Yeah, but that's we like... no chance. <laughs> yeah, I just, like, like I said, like, language and provocations. <laughs> it's the, I'm from a big family, you know, you gotta like, you gotta be smart. You gotta really like try all the tricks in order to really kind of entertain yourself instead of others. But yeah, what's your relationship with adjectives? Less is more? Because uh, so I'm a maximalist, babe. I'm like... Yeah, I feel like we can probably get a sense of our styles. Yeah. Like now. Yeah. Um, I don't like many words. 
You know, I think I am least hot on the description, but I love to analyze the shit out of everything, mm. which is like, you know, like those questions around being a public intellectual, then why do we even say yes here? And then like, what are we even doing? Being, taking part in this thing, yet we still want to sell our books, but like all of these things, like those circles of critiquing everything is like how I think about like like every single day. Right, yeah. So I'm more interested in like the analysis side of things. Yeah, and I mean like, don't get me wrong, I love a brutal editorial moment, you know? Like I love uh, James Baldwin make the sentence lean as a bone, like I love all of that, kind of cut it back in terms of what I um, consume and what I respect. But for me, for like my output, it's always very like, it's a, it's a maximal kind of like disposition. I can't help it. Yeah. But I enjoy the challenge of knowing that two opposites can both be true and I can literally be in a situation that is, you know, I'm a paradox, I'm a hypocrite, I'm all of these things. Like I free myself from that headache because I think if I'm always interrogating something that I'm doing um, beyond, you know, what's what's fair to myself and everyone's entangled under these regimes. You know, no one gets out alive under like capitalism and colonialism. Well, yeah. The only answer is definitely the end of the world as we know it. That's the only resolution for you to feel comfortable yeah. with those oppositions. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> um, we've got 14 minutes. Oh. Vibe? Well, I think it's like if there are questions, maybe make your way up to the mic. <coughs> but we can keep going until we see people hovering over there. I have a check one, two. Oh. I have a question. Um, you're talking like. Uh, themes uh, similar to Michel Foucault, who is a uh, notable French philosopher. So I was wondering if you've got some uh, content, uh, context you'd like to say about Michel Foucault. <laughs> I fuck with Foucault. That's what I... What's what I say about that? I, yeah, I fuck with them. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It is for Indigenous women to say she fucks with her car. Nothing to add. Yeah. <coughs> Thanks. Anyone else? Um. Well, one question then is, if there was one projection for the future you could make for the brown girl literati in 20 years' time, what would it be? You know, you said something really beautiful to me before you came out. You said that your dream would be that you were so irrelevant <laughs> <laughs> that you wouldn't have to work. <laughs> Because you have nobody and you would get rest. Rest. Yeah. That's my dream. Yeah. And that I think my, yeah, my dream would be that we as authors and our stories wouldn't always be um, put in proximity to white thoughts. And we wouldn't always have to justify our relationship with it in order to be validated, um, that our experiences wouldn't always be synonymous with trauma and diversity and inclusion and, you know, we were just, um, we yeah. were able to have the freedom to speak with the same uh, whimsy and um, 
you know, vapid privileges as I see some of my peers get to do. Um, we're not forced to educate as a footnote to everything that we're doing. We literally can just sit there and be like, with Foucault, I don't know. Um, for me, it's like we get to celebrate ourselves with the sense that we're in the green. We're not in the red all the time, you know, that we're not always trying to just like break the line, that we're actually like there is an abundance of us, babe. Like I'm just like, yeah. And I feel that I wouldn't be a special feature. Mm. I wouldn't feel decorative. I wouldn't feel like a party trick. Yeah, I think we've just got someone at the mic, if you want to just join the line, maybe? I'm thinking, yeah, my dream is for, for good things. Sorry if that went a little bit like. No, I, I hear that. Kia rana. Oh. Kia rana. Yeah. Hi. Um, now I feel bad coming after that really great answer that um, kind of is related to, um, sorry, I'm trying to find a way to like quickly word this. Uh, You're good. When you were talking about like um, uh, like Margaret Mead and the idea of coming to these artifacts and kind of giving them histories that aren't there that are have been suppressed or like finding new uh, histories, um, I'm just curious like how you feel about. Uh, how you approach the feeling like of authenticity or like authority to speak on that? Like um, I know I'm I'm a very papa-looking Rarotongan, uh, and it, I'm just wondering like how do you approach that feeling of knowing you are speaking with a confidence there? I guess. Yeah, I I really hate the idea of authenticity because I think authentic to who and who who gets to police who is authentic at, at any given time and we have so much baggage that we have to deal with do we even know if we're being authentic in a moment but all you can do or all I can do is speak my truth at the at that moment and I also always um reserve the right to be wrong and reserve the right to kind of come back to myself and correct my work in the future and also that's I think a part of writing is that you give it to readers and for them to rework and make better and to add on to it. But I know my intentions and I can sleep at night. And so I think it's like those kinds of questions. And also it's like, I'm accountable to people who <coughs> like don't come to my talks, you know? Like my family, if, if they had a problem with it, it would be different. But mm. they're the ones who I'm accountable to. And so, you know, if I need to vibe check or sense check things, I'll do that, but you know, I'm, I've never asked to be an authority. I don't claim to be an authority. All I can do is like speak what I speak. And so, you know, I kind of let that pressure go off me. Yeah. Mm. Um, Authenticity is a transient thing. You know, you can be really like, uh, when you serve it um, constantly as best you can, you can literally be in a, another node in time down the track and look back and want to revise or denounce whatever it was you were doing then. And that's natural. That's the human experience. And to think that you need to be in, um, in a position where you are constantly um, achieving, you know, the labor of authenticity, that's like, I can't perform and rehearse that on top of all of the other psychic um, baggage that I have to mitigate. You know, I'm like, yeah, I reserve the right to be an authentic down the road, <laughs> I don't, you know, and it's something that I think is really, yeah, it's about your relationship with that and your confidence to do that. Maybe you feel you want to garner more rights to speak on certain things and that can only be a good thing. Yeah, kia ora. Thank you. Uh, kia ora. Uh, I was just wondering if either of you would like to talk about uh, what a 
typical day. Is for <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Ironically, no. But thank you, my guy. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you had a question over here? The person here? Yeah, I mean, I don't carry that mantle and I don't feel like... Oh, it was about carrying the mantle for all Samoan women riders and what would make, what would take the pressure off that. Um, yeah, I don't feel like I carry that. I've never asked to carry that. I don't want to carry that. Other people put that on me. And so I would say that um, we should stop putting too much pressure on people who tick various diversity boxes and who want to make the work that they make as... It's just not more than it is. Like, it's just, you know, Bloody Woman is just my collection of essays written in 2021. And it, you know, if it has these kind of, if it t t talks to people and touches people, that's amazing. But I never asked to be the only person writing that stuff. It's not my fault that there is 50 years of structural inequity that has kept our writers out of these spaces. And so, you know, that's not, I can't solve that. So I don't know. The answer is just more of us. And there are people here who can make that happen, but that's not me. Yeah. As a writer, you know, I feel relief in knowing that um, I have no delusions of being a singular voice. Or, um, you know, I'm part of a long tradition of um, Indigenous writers, um, Māori writers, Pacifica writers, um, Wahine writers, and I know that I am, you know, part of that that glut of magic and I serve as just like a contribution to that. So I don't feel that pressure. And um, yeah, I have community people who um, help me and keep me accountable and things like that. But um, in terms of how people can offer us reprieve in the um, literary space, I think if you are make any contribution to this industrial complex, interrogate like every aspect of the system that you work within, um, you know, from every part of what enables writers like us to be able to do things like this, like ask yourself like, where are the opportunities for all writers of color in this country, in, in the South Pacific, you know, because there are people who are just completely unaware of how racist it can be and how sexist it can be. But that's not, you know, I'm not here to lament those things. Um, it's more the fact that to make it easier for us on a macro scale as well, it's just yes, good old socio-political classics. Give me my land back, all of that kind of stuff. You know, it's like these things all trickle down to small outcomes like this and you always you always can make contributions you can always kind of critique your com your complicity or contribution to something you know you don't always have to like we were saying just let me order my coffee <laughs> let me do my best you know but that would be my answer cool and we'll just take the last question kia ora um my question was just a little bit different, but talking about your experience, I guess, in the classroom as learning as a writer, and I know that you're both kind of talking about how writing has been very natural. Um, and uh, for example, at the IML, what your experience was there versus kind of writing as more of a natural instinct for you versus being taught it in the classroom mm. and how you found that. Thank you. Um, I felt it was very difficult I don't feel comfortable. I don't look back at that time necessarily very fondly, but um, it gave me tools for completely different conversations and things that I would have to survive and mitigate in the book space, so I'm grateful for it for that. Um, 
and I believe that, yeah, writing um, at all levels, underground level, DIY level, you know, they need to be um, centred and celebrated, amplified and supported more. And, um, yeah, um, I just want to thank all of um, everybody who came out and um, just to see us and to hear us and support us and people who take our work seriously and who um, want to see us do well. Our, yeah, our Māori and Pacifica brethren and all of our people of colour and all our wahine and our queer family. Um, do you have anything you want to say? We're in charge of the outro. Oh, yeah, I, I was going to outro. Yeah, yeah, go yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I never went to writing school, so I learned in like a very public, embarrassing way. Yeah, she's art school. She's art school girly. Yeah, but it was embarrassing because I can't delete the internet and it's, <laughs> it's still there. Um, so we have come to the end of our session. <laughs> Both How to Loiter and a Turf War and Bloody Women are on sale and we will be at the author signing table out the doors, up the stairs to the left. Um, Coco will be speaking again tomorrow at 5pm in Powerplay and I will be chairing a discussion on poetry called Black Forest Poets of the Pacific on Sunday at 12.30. Huge thank you, Jess, for joining me on stage. Thank you all for enduring uh, what I think was like a self-indulgent conversation, but I, I apologise, none. Um, and also thank you for giving us your Friday evening. Um, Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.